Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Cast episode 672, Space Debris Removal. Welcome to Astronomy Cast, our weekly facts-based journey through the cosmos, where we help you understand not only what we know, but how we know what we know. My name is Fraser Kane. I'm the publisher of Universe Today. With me, as always, is Dr. Pamela Gay, a senior scientist for the Planetary Science Institute and the director of CosmoQuest. Hey, Pamela, how are you doing? I, I am doing well. I just got home from a wonderful few days. Uh, Dustin Gibson, Ian Lauer, they taught me how to use some of the telescopes out there. And oh, I just so want to cool. give a shout out to them to actually bring in the clear skies. I don't see those very often. So you had clear skies and you were around telescopes. Yes. Yes. A miracle Weird. occurred. Pigs flied. Yeah. Flown. I don't know the past chance of that right now. Winter continues Flew. here on the west coast of Canada. Uh, my wife shared a, a post on Facebook where it said, this isn't winter anymore. This is harassment. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I thought that was perfect. Yeah. Yes. Like, yes. I've, got, I've got a couple of inches of snow on the ground here in mid-March. And mm-hmm. that is deeply unusual, mm-hmm. except for last year, which was also deeply unusual. But even the snow was gone last year. So, yeah, this is just this is just sick and wrong. I have I have fruit trees to grow. I've got things to plant. I need the weather to behave. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> We've talked about the rising problem of space junk. Okay, we know it's an issue. So what can be done about it? Today, we'll talk about ideas to remove space junk, making sure that space is open to use for centuries to come. So we've gone on and on complaining, whining, wah, 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 space junk, there's too much debris up there, Kessler syndrome, we'll never leave, we're trapped eternally. Okay, fine. What's somebody going to do about this? How do we stop this? It basically comes down to we need a... a uh, giant space ball style vacuum cleaner to <laughs> to grab all of the junk and failing that people are going up with various uh versions of grappling on with arms deploying magnets and there's even like if you've ever played flag football where you pull the flag off of somebody and knock them out. Well, we're looking to do more of the pin the tail and the donkey version of that where sticking flags onto bits of debris to give them extra drag and 
There are so many ideas. All right. We'll go through these ideas bit by bit, but, but let's start with what I think is the best idea, which is don't produce space junk in the yes. first place. Yes, exactly. So how do we minimize, I guess, what part of a spacecraft of a launch generates space junk? It, it all depends, but we, we currently have, as forms of space junk, the second and higher stages of rockets that instead of falling back to the, the atmosphere and self-destructing in the atmosphere, have instead decided in orbit's a good place to be. Right. We have defunct uh, satellites that are just hanging out, being dead and unsteerable. We have things that have fallen off all manner of mission, uh, been dropped by astronauts. And then, unfortunately, there's also the debris that either came from missions that self-destructed on deployment or were quite purposefully split apart by uh, various nations testing their ability to do harm hmm. or things colliding. And I guess one of the biggest is the is the spent boosters. When you think about a yeah. rocket launching, you have the first stage launching and then the second stage takes over and the second stage continues to fire its engines until it has put the spacecraft into essentially its final orbit. But yeah. that means that it is also in that final orbit. And so the, exactly. the payload and the booster then continue on. And these boosters can be gigantic. I mean, yes. they're as big as school buses and they're orbiting around the earth. They occasionally get mistaken for miniature asteroids that we have caught in our orbit. And no, they're just boosters. And then you've got, and so the, the first stages, they either land back on a barge or burn up in the atmosphere the fairings will crash into the ocean, but or be those, caught, or be caught. Yeah, but that it's that second stage, yeah, and you know even potentially a third stage on say the Saturn V. They're still out there. In many cases, as you say, they are they are orbiting the sun and are confused that the people are confused and think it's an asteroid. So, what can we do to minimize boosters, uh, set dead satellites in the end? With some pre-planning, how can we help these objects take care of themselves? Well, there, there's basically three different strategies for getting rid of the boosters. The simplest would be having them retain or have any different system just enough thrust that they can send themselves back down through the atmosphere. Alternatively, if they're only going to low Earth orbit, you can have them have drag systems hmm. that cause their orbits to decay significantly faster. And we've seen some tests recently yes. with this technology. They're, they're super cool and they're super bright. So on one hand, it's really cool to look up and know that bright streak of tether up there that I can see with my off-the-shelf telescope is, is a satellite doing something cool. At the same time, though, it, it is a bit problematic, but launches at least aren't as common as communication satellite constellations. And there was a recent test uh, of a European Space Agency mission. They deployed this little 10 centimeter cube drag sail onto yes. the mission and then it 
flew up, performed its functions, and then it deployed this drag sail that kind of looks like a solar sail. Yeah. Um, and then what would have taken five years for it to deorbit, it only took one year because it had a much larger drag coefficient with the Earth's atmosphere, and it cleaned itself up. So imagine them putting these modules on every single spacecraft that's designed yes. to work in low Earth orbit. But as you say, it's got to be low Earth orbit. You've got to be interacting with, with the, the atmosphere with the atmosphere, or it's not going to function. And I really think that using lightweight materials to create large amounts of drag is the easiest way to go. Unfortunately, it's not an entirely predictable process, which means that you have to do a lot of effort First of all, knowing the orbit for these itty-bitty little tiny things and then seeing how they change. And as we approach solar max, our atmosphere is going to be changing in size on the regular as we're struck by energetic particles from the hmm. sun. Um, so there, there is going to be a new level of chaos in this upcoming solar max that we haven't seen before as we have more and more low Earth orbit communication satellites, more and more CubeSats, right. and a misbehaving atmosphere. So then let's imagine a, a situation where someone has launched a booster or a satellite that doesn't have any method of returning itself back down to earth. Could we rescue it? Could we send up something to deorbit it later? Yes. And there, there's been some initial tests of this technology already that, that I think is super cool. This, this is where we had back in 2020, the ELSA demo, and I, I would love to know who managed to come up with this. It stands for End of Life Services by Astroscale. And during their demonstration, they they carried up with them a, a second satellite that they ran their tests on, and they let go of it, and they initially just caught it. They let it drift and caught it, and they were practicing over and over just how hard is it to catch a satellite in these different scenarios. Like a cat playing with a mouse. Exactly. Right? Really I, it catching it. Yeah, that's cool. And, and Astroskill is very much planning a one-for-one one kind of system where you launch up one of their satellites, it magnetically grapples onto something, and then it and the something it grabbed both come down out of orbit. Um, so so that that's one way of doing it. I personally am intrigued by some of the new plans that are coming out of a UK funding challenge where they're saying, okay, we want things with arms that will grab things. And I can imagine right. a future where you have robotic arms grabbing things and hurling them towards the atmosphere. I, I don't know quite right. how the angular momentum will work on something like that, but it amuses me. Um, <laughs> But at least grabbing them with arms, latching on, and then firing the thruster, and then exactly. carrying it and its payload into the atmosphere. And and the other big set of examples we had came from Northward. Grumman, where back in uh, February 2020, they docked onto an Intel sat that was above geostationary orbit. This was a parked and left for dead mission. 
and they successfully grabbed it and brought it back down to geostationary orbit where it could continue doing its job. Um, Another uh, test they did was in April 2021. Uh, This was their Mission Extension Vehicle 2 and they docked with another Intel sat this time in geo, which is an extremely crowded area of orbit. And but also a big space. It's a big space, yeah. but they proved that they could successfully navigate within this region and extend the life of satellites. And if you can extend the life of satellites by either refueling them or adding something onto them that has that additional fuel, you can extend their life and you don't need to launch more things. Right. Yeah. And the best way to avoid junk. It's like buying an older car and yeah. maintaining it. And that means that you don't need to buy a new car, which removes one additional car from the road. So yeah. it makes a ton of sense if they can rescue these older satellites that, that have just merely run out of propellant, but they're still functional, yeah. or they've lost their guidance system or whatever, you can attach, you can bolt on this, this I don't know, parasite satellite, <laughs> <laughs> right, that then performs yes. those additional functions. Like, you know, it has propellant on board, it has guidance systems, it has a better communications array, whatever, that can then fix whatever is the problem of that satellite. It's a, it's an elegant solution. Yeah. And I, you, you would imagine instead of spending $500 million to build an entirely new communication satellite, you just send up a $20 million propellant tank mm-hmm. that with arms that, that, well, that latches on and then performs that function. I love the idea. And, and imagine a future where instead of moving the entire propellant tank, which would have to be pretty big, you park in some middling orbit, 14,000 miles up or something, and you have a giant refueling tank that can itself be refueled from Earth, and then a small army of little robots that can grab onto things, and, and potentially... We, we figured out how to refuel aircraft by simply making sure that they had the right nozzles to grab onto each other. Now, if we can figure out how to build spacecraft compatible with refueling satellites, we will have a future where there's just this flock is the best word I can think of, of little boosters that simply do all the Holman transfers in the world to get from one orbit to another and refuel these things. And Mm -hmm. that's the future I want, an army of small grappling robots Mm -hmm. that refuel things. Yeah, I mean, the non-reusability of spacecraft today is still kind of crazy. And Musk would always make this analogy, be like, imagine if you're airplane, every time you flew your airplane, you you destroyed it and bought a new airplane, it would make trips to Europe very expensive. Well, to push that analogy further, imagine if inside that airplane was your car and you would drive Mm -hmm. the car out of the airplane while the airplane was lit on fire. And then you would drive your car until it ran out of gas, the one tank of gas, and then you would walk away from the car, which is madness. So yeah, yeah, if you could, if you could maintain, restore these satellites. And then if you could then design them to, mm-hmm. 
to make this process very easy. Pull out the main bus, swap out the reaction wheels. You can just imagine this scissor-armed spacecraft with all kinds of parts on board sidling up next to the to the satellite that's having problems and sw- hot swapping out parts. Yes. I love that future. Yeah. The, right? This is the future I want. Mm-hmm. Now, all the things that we've talked about so far, though, they only apply for things that are big, essentially. Right. And the scary stuff in orbit is that millimeter to centimeter right. level stuff. All right. So let's get scary. Let's talk about the little stuff. <laughs> so... As, as we thought initially occurred with the MS-22 capsule on the International Space Station, you can get stuff that is millimeter size moving fast enough that it can puncture spacecraft. And this is disturbing. Because mm-hmm. uh, once you get down to millimeter, you can't, if it's moving in low Earth orbit, see it at all. It's, it's, you just, you can't discover it. Yeah. And ground tracking stations are tracking tens of thousands, close to a hundred thousand objects that are one centimeter or bigger. Mm -hmm. And when you think about say a bell curve, there's this whole region of stuff that is smaller than one centimeter that is still very dangerous. A thing that is half a centimeter across hitting a spacecraft is a very bad day. Yeah. And, and this is where you have to figure out how do we go out and catch stuff with a craft that if you match speeds wrong, if you do it wrong, you're going to end up sending your space cleaning mission, tumbling, spinning, perforate it. <laughs> right. It becomes part of the problem. I mean, like, let's just talk about the energies involved here, right? These spacecraft are going uh, 10-ish, I forget what's what's orbital velocity, like 28,000 kilometers an hour. Yeah. So, so let's say you're off by a thousand kilometers an hour. Well, you hit a spacecraft with a piece of debris at a thousand kilometers an hour, it will potentially destroy it and cause a whole new cloud of debris. So -hmm. you can't get this wrong. And this is where folks are starting to look at ideas like using magnets, which will hopefully make the speeds make sense, doing matching orbits to try and grab things. It it all started actually in the mid-80s where NASA had the idea to basically – grab things with like the idea of running around with a giant tarp, except it was a spacecraft (laughs) and catching things inside of it. It's just, it's gotten more and more complex. And one of the difficulties is we have things going in a whole range of different directions around the planet. Yeah. And let's stop on this. And because I think this is the heart of of what everyone in their mind is is thinking about solutions to this problem right now. But like, Mm -hmm. let's, I just want to, I want to just really hammer home the scale of this issue. You've got close to 100,000 objects, each of which is traveling around the earth at 28,000 kilometers per hour. If Mm -hmm. you approach this object, not exactly the same speed, you are either going to shred the piece of debris or your spacecraft 
adding to the problem. And so if if you said to, to a mission planner, I want to recover this one meter chunk of metal from space, they'd be like, no problem. All we need to do is design a $50 million spacecraft with robotic arms, put it on top of a $100 million Falcon 9 launch. So you're looking at a $150 million mission. It will fly out to this one meter piece of debris, grapple it with its little arms, and then hug it close, and the two will reenter the Earth's atmosphere together. Oh, and throwing also out the, all the investment of money. Well, not throwing out. I mean, you cleaned space. You yes. spent $150 million, and you removed one little chunk of metal. And the problem is, is that if you want to remove a different chunk of metal, you need a different $150 million mission to go get that piece of metal yeah. and, and just add those numbers up. Like, like there is no easy way to just collect all this stuff yeah. with one spacecraft because each one requires a change in velocity. And so you need to add propellant to your spacecraft to go after each one of them. It's a, it's a thorny problem. Mm-hmm. That we it let really, get away really from is. us. Yeah. So yeah. what's the solution then? What's, what are the ideas um, to remove the debris in a way that doesn't require a, a, a multi-hundred million dollar project for each piece of debris? Right. So, so for the smaller stuff, folks are still working on the idea of coming very close to matching the orbital speed and just scoop hmm. and scoop. So you can imagine a set... Of, of precessing orbits that go from a little bit closer to the Earth to a little bit further out so that as you're going through any given orbit, your speed is just slightly different from the stuff in that orbit. Right. Allowing you to catch it. But you have to be close and you can only catch things that are in a very close orbit. So you could have a mission that it's a little bit in and it's a little bit out is moving over time and it just keeps grabbing a little bit more and a little bit more. Right. And it uses a little bit of propellant each time to slightly change its orbit to grab the next piece. And so you could, you could mathematically work out this ladder of, of orbits. And hopefully instead of you spending $200 million to collect one piece of debris, you could spend $200 million to collect a hundred pieces of debris. And and this is like flying around with a spider web, essentially, where you just keep catching things and trying to catch it in something that is exceedingly flexible, just like a spider web. When a fly hits, it brings that fly to zero velocity very quickly. Right. Well, in this case, it has to bring it to a matched velocity very quickly. So trying to build something that can have all the needed maneuverability and all the needed flexibility, these are the things folks are thinking about and and then for the middle-sized stuff you just tag them like a game of pin the tail and the donkey but it really sounds like i mean i like that idea tag tag them like maybe even from afar like you could yeah you could fire some kind of uh backpack at them <laughs> that contains their drag <laughs> sail right right and then or a tether there's something that yeah. that you could you could harpoon Increase it with their drag somehow. right and this has been this has been proposed again but i like i've got i've got to say when you think of the scale of the problem, it is like going into a war zone and collecting all the bullets in flight. Yeah. And and could it be done? Yes. 
theoretically, you could chase down all of the bullets that are being fired in a, in a, we in a war zone. We need Magneto. We yeah, really need but Magneto. It is, but nobody is going to take on that expense, that everybody's just going to turn back and go, no, this is not. So, so lasers to the rescue, right? That That is one thing that folks have talked about, is using lasers and light pressure to move things around. That, again, is another high-energy thing. So how would this work? So, so the idea is, we don't think about it, but all the lights that are currently shining on me in the studio are exerting a force on my body as the photons collide with the surface of my skin. Now... If you zot something with a powerful enough laser, that that energy is either going to get transformed into melting something. You can usually write in chocolate with a strong green laser. This is something I enjoy doing. That's cool. Or if it's a highly reflective surface, that laser light will hit the surface, transfer all of the momentum from the photons, and cause that surface to move. And and so this is like slowly moving something with a water gun, except those water drops from the gun have a whole lot more mass than those photons, but they're moving slower. So, I mean, it's it's a strong enough laser on a reflective enough surface. You can move things. Mm-hmm. It's, again, high energy, but it's also highly focusable. So... Right. One more idea to add to the arsenal. And that's, I mean, that's to bounce things off. But the other yes. idea is to ablate. And I, I like that yes. idea as because it's a lot more effective. Yes. I, I was just going to say the idea of ablating is, is you basically are removing layers of the material until it is no more. Well, but also it acts like a propellant. So you fire a, a high enough power laser at a piece of debris as it's flying nearby you. You vaporize a little chunk of material off the surface of the object. That turns into a tiny yes. little propellant stream that gives the debris a kick in the opposite direction. And so now it's as if the piece of debris has fired its own little rocket to slow itself down in the direction of the Tiniest ion drive. Tiniest yeah. ion drive. Right, exactly. The tiniest ion drive. And what's great is that the laser can just sit there and then just fire at different targets as they go by one after the other without having to change its orbit. So you just wait. I love that there's so many different ideas on how to do this, that when you said oblate, I went to the, okay, let's destroy millimeter targets. Right. And you went to the, let's create a tiny hole on something to get it to move. Yeah. The ideas are almost as numerous as the space junk, and we just need someone to break down And start paying to do it. So there, there have been a couple of papers that, that we've reported on at Universe Today about these yeah. ablative lasers. Most of the ideas are coming out of China. And so, like, a laser capable of reaching out tens of kilometers, perhaps even hundreds of kilometers in space, with enough power to vaporize a little piece of titanium... It's terrifying. It's kind of terrifying, yeah. Yeah. Would you be all right having that in orbit overhead? I feel like that breaks the Outer Space Treaty somewhere. Like, I mean, it's not nuclear-powered. Destroying something from a kilometer away, that's like a good, safe orbital separation. But closer than a kilometer, that is uncomfortable. Yeah. And so you can, like, obviously, it doesn't, you know, any nation who proposes this idea... 
is going to get a lot of pushback from the other nations because you could just turn this thing around and start shooting it at other at functioning satellites and mm-hmm. take them and make them non-operational. You could turn it at the ground and yeah. blind things that are pointed in space. So there's yeah. there's a lot of downsides, but then you could also use it to send off your probes to Alpha Centauri. So that's cool yeah. for breakthrough star shots. So I think. Um, you know, there are challenges that that we're going to have to face to be able to come up with this problem. Of all of them, I think this technology is the is the one that will be most effective, but it's also the one that's the most politically problematic because anyone who launches this thing has a lot of dangerous capability in space. Yeah. I, I'm just gonna keep going with the pin the tail and the donkey idea. Let's let's just do that. Going to do that a hundred thousand times? Sure. It could be fun. I, fun for the aerospace industry to create a, an endless fleet of spacecraft, maybe. But yeah, it is like there was an estimate that I read that we need to remove five defunct satellites a year yeah. to keep up with the amount of new satellites that are being launched, as well as the amount that are naturally just deorbiting themselves because of atmospheric drag. Mm-hmm. And that if we don't do that, then this problem is just going to get worse and worse yeah. and worse over time. Yeah. It's a scary time. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, and, and I think like we imagine this idea of the Kessler, like one day we're going to wake up and find out that the earth is now enclosed within an impenetrable shield of, no. of shrieking debris, but it's just wear and tear. Have you ever seen or been part of one of the truly massive uh, car pileups that starts with like one car going high speed hits another right. car. Yeah. People start slamming on their brakes, which triggers more accidents, which triggers more accidents. And and sometimes if the road isn't that busy, the one accident, it's just those two cars end up off in the medium and everyone slows down to to lollygag because that's what humans do. The Kessler syndrome is going to be something like that, but much slower where first you have a defunct satellite hits another satellite and it creates a little bit of debris that spreads out over time. And some of that debris, maybe months, maybe years later, hits something else. And it's going to add up and hopefully give us time to panic and actually invest money in things that people aren't investing money in. But it would be cheaper to invest now than to have to do it fast-tracked in the future. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like all of these environmental problems that humanity faces, the best thing to do is face the problem head-on today, invest what it's going to take to minimize the consequences downstream. Yeah. Will we do it? History says no. You're right. And on that happy note, thank you, Pamela. (laughs) Thank you, Fraser. And um, thank you to all of our patrons who allowed us to create this ends on a very sad note episode. Uh, You make 
everything we do possible. And and I just want to say thank you this week to Planetar, Sean Matz, uh, Andrew Stevenson, GeForce 184, Alex Rain, the mysterious Mark, James Roger, Paul L. Hayden, Karthik Vekatraman, Glenn McDavid, Benjamin Davies, Kami Brassian, Gabriel Galfin, Dean, Stephen Calfi, the Air Major, John Osef, Bart Flaherty, Sam Brooks and his mom, Nate Detweiler, the lonely sand person, Brian Kelby, Nula, uh, Lee Zealand, Arctic Fox, John Drake, Corinne Demtruck, Jordan Turner, uh, Lee Hornbarn, Harborn, rather, Jason uh, Cardukas, Robert uh, Hundle, Kim Barron, Paul Esposito, Bob Zatsky, Ron Thorson, uh, Arthur Latz Hall, DFM, Ruben McCarthy, Daniel Donaldson, Frank Stewart, Time Lord Ira, Will Hamilton, Ian Abdullah, and Jeff McDonald. Thank you. I cannot thank all of you enough. Well, we're sure going to try. Yeah. Thank you. We are. Thanks, everyone, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Astronomy Cast is a joint product of Universe Today and the Planetary Science Institute. Astronomy Cast is released under a Creative Commons attribution license. So love it, share it, and remix it. But please credit it to our hosts, Fraser Kane and Dr. Pamela Gay. You can get more information on today's show topic on our website, astronomycast.com. This episode was brought to you thanks to our generous patrons on Patreon. If you want to help keep this show going, please consider joining our community at patreon.com slash astronomycast. Not only do you help us pay our producers a fair wage, you will also get special access to content right in your inbox and invites to online events. We are so grateful to all of you who have joined our Patreon community already. Anyways, keep looking up. This has been Astronomy Cast. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.